Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Morning, everybody. It's Michael here. Mark's there. I nearly got those two names mixed up after just explaining to Mark which I had to lapel up that as a, as a little catchphrase, which is embarrassing for me. But anyway, how are you? I think you're still growing as a broadcaster, Michael. I've got a lot of time for what you do. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. And I'm... Um... Excited, as usual, to introduce this episode of our podcast. Yes, we have Nikesh Shukla. You've heard the podcast of you, Nikesh. Well, I mean, I'm the one who asked you guys if I could come on. So exactly, yeah. It's a, like I was straight in Watson's DMs, begging him. It was quite honestly embarrassing. So yeah, if you let me into the hallowed castle. This, <laughs> I hope this is being picked up by us. And this can be the intro. At last, a guest is treating us with the reverence. I will use the word, <laughs> the reverence that we and this podcast serve. Because as you might have already uh, picked up on. Uh, Nikesh, we're very proud of this, Like, has heard the podcast, which is more than almost anyone else can say that goes on it, and asked to be on it. I don't. I think worships is a big word, but this is massive. <laughs> <laughs> this was, I mean, he'd already listened to the podcast, right? He was like a, almost a fan. I wouldn't say almost, Mark. I would say definitely one of the avid legions that we have. I'm nervous to assume someone is part of the avid legions, as you put it. But um, yeah, <laughs> we spent a lot of the time basically just boosting our egos by talking to him about previous podcast episodes. Really lovely conversation um, and a really pensive, thoughtful one and a different perspective than we've had before. So um, yeah, enjoy. Yeah, I agree with that. Enjoy. So Nikesh Shukla joins us today as an enormous, massive, lifelong fan of the podcast. And um, <laughs> he's very recently published a book that Michael and I both thought was brilliant, but there's quite a lot more to it than that. Nikesh, other than a sort of mankind devotee, would you like to say a bit about who you are, about your work and so forth? Yeah. Hi, I'm Nikesh Shukla. I am a writer and a devotee of this podcast and any podcast featuring either of you. I have not been kidnapped. No one is paying me to say this either. <laughs> Can you hear me blinking on this microphone? <laughs> <laughs> I've written some books. I've edited some books and I am... One of the many brown screenwriters perpetually in development and never gets to get a TV show on, but we get to say we're TV writers. Ah, you're locked into that <laughs> personal hell. <laughs> yeah. The book that you very recently published is um, a memoir called Brown Baby about raising, um, well, small children. And we haven't spoken that much about parenting really on this 
podcast, but it's on my mind a lot because, like you, at some point I made the questionable decision to have children. <laughs> so I think it's worth going back to your childhood and asking something we always ask. You'll know this because, you know, you listen to nothing but mankind. <laughs> Is there a moment you recall masculinity becoming a thing for you? Like a th- you becoming aware of it as something you were meant to fit into? I thought about this and I, I can't describe a moment, but I went to an all boys school and I think that probably had quite a big impact on me because during the day I was surrounded by posh boys who had very specific ideas of what it was to be a white man Mm. and at home I was sort of surrounded by women because you know it was my my family's a very matriarchal family that you know I've got lots of female cousins and sisters and the thing that I really remember from being a kid like two of my best friends two Asian boys Anand and Nishant who I kind of lovingly write a bit about our relationship in my first novel Mm, yeah in sort of India, like men walk down the streets holding hands and, you know, they often like have their arms around each other. But when you go to a boys school, especially in the mid 90s or like the 80s and 90s, that was seen as gay. Where was the school, by the way? I don't want to talk about that school. They made my mum cry once. I hate that school. I don't want to talk about it. I want to give oh, it all the more oh. reason to shame them. But fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for those boys that I was at school with, the worst thing in the world for them was the thought that one of them could be gay. Yeah. And I found it really hard because I didn't really understand it. And we used to walk through the school and Anand would have his arms around me and Nishan. And they'd constantly be calling us gay or calling us um, gay packies or what have you. And Double whammy insult. Yeah, yeah. The double slur. Like they're using gay pejoratively. Sorry, that's that's what I mean. But um, yeah. And I think it was around that time I just sort of started to question what the problem was, like why Anand couldn't show his affection for his friends Mm. and why I sort of bristled a bit at him showing his affection when it was noticed by other people and also why these words were sort of weaponized against us. And it really made me think that this just is an environment I feel very comfortable in. But my parents were so invested in single sex education for me and my sister that I just sort of had to go through it. and Why do you think that was, by the way? Was there a reason why they thought it was important, the single sex thing? I don't know. I've never really, never really talked to them about it. I think for my parents, you know, I come from an immigrant family and my dad really wanted one of his children to go to university. Mm. And, you know, I was the first person in our family to go to university. And he kind of felt that if we were to be successful, then we should go to private school to one of those sort of elite institutions. And if we went there, we'd be sort of not just have, in inverted commas, the best education, but we'd also be plugged into like various networks and old boys networks and elite circles. Mm. And the thing was that my parents couldn't afford to send us to this school. They they worked seven days a week and, you know, they were constantly in debt. And I'm not like presenting this as old boohoo, I went to private school thing. But But your parents were overreaching themselves in some ways to make it happen. Yeah, I just... I grew up not understanding why they were putting themselves through it. Yeah. The thing you're talking about with the expression of affection, it's something that I've thought about a lot for a culture which has such problematic views towards gay people a lot of the time. The expression of affection between men and homosocial love, I suppose, is so welcomed and encouraged. And you mentioned when you were talking about when your friend was expressing affection towards you, you began to bristle because of the impact of other people's views of that. Did you end up kind of closing off that side or did you defiantly kind of keep going with it? What's really interesting is like, this is how amazing and brave my friend was because Mm. he was like, I don't understand why you care what they think. Yeah. 
And when he said that to me, I felt such shame that I had sort of betrayed our friendship by caring what other people thought. Yeah. Not many people have that insight at that age, I don't think. Like, no, no. Caring what people it, think is everything at that stage. It was for me. Yeah, it was It was a really powerful moment for me. I mean... It still is, I suppose. <laughs> I still haven't liberated myself from the worry of what people think. Yeah. Now. I mean, when you put yourself out into the creative sphere and you're like throwing out work into the world and you're like, please, please give me validation. Mm. You find yourself constantly thinking what people think. Yeah. Like, yes, I find myself on Goodreads at all hours of the day. Usually when I'm feeling depressed and I really want to like find someone to tell me the thing that I secretly think about myself. I find yeah. myself reading To good- needle the pain. Yeah. 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 Back up your self-loathing. So when you felt that shame, how did you react to that shame? We had a long conversation about it. And what was sort of sad about it was after he'd, spoken to me and sort of gone I didn't understand why you were sort of pulling away from me in that moment Mm. I acted more open but something had kind of lost it for him and he never did that again in school and so Mm. that relationship became how we all acted with each other outside of school rather than in those school corridors and I sort of carried this guilt for a long time that sort of because of how I'd reacted in that moment he had chosen how he should be in that space and thus the perpetuating of what is acceptably manly or not continued. And that's why I think it's so interesting because we don't often have such an illustrative example of when you're growing up in a pure relationship where you actively close a door somewhat. What it sounds like, what you're saying, Nikesh, not to put words in your mouth, but you were saying, "I, I don't not want this, but I'm struggling with the impact it's having on everybody else. And that's I don't think we've heard quite as clear an example of that before. No, schools are sort of hotbeds of imitative behaviour, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And like Nikesh has illustrated how quickly a door can close in your life just because of one thing that the kid called Chris says. I didn't go to an all-boys school, but it, it was nonetheless a relatively similar climate of, you know, calling each other gay was a thing. I remember the first time I got called gay was for having a football sticker album. I collected something gay, famously. <laughs> and I don't think that's quite the same now. My kid's 11. And I, people will still use gay in a pejorative way, at his school but you can tell that they're better educated i think i don't think it holds water as an insult in quite the same way now i wonder if in the 80s and 90s when it was weaponized in that way it was used to mean you are the opposite of manly yeah yes that's come up before hasn't it yes i completely agree men try to cling to their sense of worth by identifying people who haven't got that stuff the manly stuff what did you see as the manly stuff when you were growing up i mean probably Arnold Schwarzenegger's rippling muscles as he held massive guns and fired them one-handed at aliens and shit. (laughs) Yeah, Schwarzenegger's got quite a lot to answer for. At least put two hands on the weapon, mate. Yeah. He's a bad role model for shooters as well as everything else. So growing up, I think the ultimate sort of stock in manliness was the strong silent type, which is interesting because it kind of comes up quite a lot in The Sopranos, in the therapy that Tony Soprano Mm. is having. And, you know, obviously like... Tony Soprano is a a fascinating character because he is a monster who has such a strict moral compass that he thinks everything he does is for the good of his family and not actually for the good of his ego. Mm. And he has this fascination with the strong silent type as well. And my dad was the strong silent type. He provided and he sat quietly in the corner drinking whiskey. And Ah, that sounds like the life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love I wish I was the strong silent type. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the complaining loudy type yeah uh, <laughs> i'm the weak vocal type the opposite <laughs> and is it true to say that or better say that uh, that phrase the strong sound type became a sort of shorthand for or a, a way of allowing men to not talk about 
an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. Because I feel like, you're right, Strong Silent Type was seen as such an overwhelming positive that we didn't ask ourselves what it might do to people to be silent for decades of their lives sometimes. Yeah, to speak about your problems is to give them power in in some way. It feels like if you don't vocalise a thing, if you don't work your way through a thing with the support of people around you, you push it down and down and down and down. And it's like, Mm. it's like a geezer waiting to erupt. There was like three modes for my dad. There was like stressed, angry or quiet. The old SAQ. (laughs) It was very rare that I saw him experiencing joy. I mean, if you've got three modes and two of them are stressed and angry, that's (laughs) (laughs) not a very pleasant life by the sound of it. And how did that affect you, do you think? You obviously, from your book, it seems if you're very open with your kids about, well, everything that's going on in your head. Yeah, you do that thing of you sort of like spotting the things you feel your parents didn't do, Mm -hmm. didn't nail, and you go the extreme opposite end. Because I could see the impact that sending me to that school was having on my parents and how much they were working. I never understood the sacrifices that they made and yet they were constantly reminded of these mm. sacrifices that they were making and so i just constantly felt like this return on investment kid i had such pressure on me to like make it worth the cost of sending me to this school which yeah even though you hadn't chosen that yeah but it closes the the world off for you in certain ways because it means you know you shouldn't really have any interest in in the arts or in you know i was really good at languages at school but that was a thing that wasn't really acknowledged as gonna make back the money that my parents had put into my schooling so it wasn't just about you going to university it was can you monetize everything that's been yeah, put yeah. into you that's a lot for a kid to have on their shoulders i think i did a law degree and on day three of the law degree i really remember crying on the shoulders of two people who i'd met in the registration queue at university just saying i'm doing the wrong degree wow. and they were like well Talk to your parents, go home, talk to your parents and change your degree. It's not that hard. I was like, well, it really is. Mm. And I did three years of that degree. I scraped a 2-2 in law. Did you ever stop feeling that it was the wrong degree or did you live for three years pushing yourself down a path which you weren't really meant to be walking? I always knew it was the wrong degree for me. But what's interesting now is like nearly 20 years later, I look back at it and I go, it's the reason I've ended up at the point that I've ended up. Like Mm. I only feel equipped to talk about the stuff that I talk about publicly because of various decisions I made within that degree. Like I decided to focus on human rights and I did lots of human rights modules and all of that gave me such an interesting perspective on the world that now feeds out into all of the work that I do. Like it fed out into like doing the good immigrant into writing Brown baby into like all of the activism work I've done over the years So probably I wouldn't go back and change all of it, but I did feel like those were decisions I was making because of other people. If my kid ever is unhappy what he's doing at university, I'll say, well, I know someone called Nikesh who said that, and look at him now. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel that restriction at the time, do you think? Or did you just think this is how it should be? I guess I was one British Asian kid surrounded by loads of other British Asian kids who felt similar restrictions. Yeah, It was just very normal for all of the kids around me. They all wanted to do professional careers because that's what their parents had wanted. That's why their parents came to the UK. Mm. And I ended up being the outlier because when I was at university, I discovered a band called Asian Dub Foundation, became absolutely obsessed with them, started writing a novel, met the lead singer of Asian Dub Foundation, asked him if I could send him my novel. And then he started like meeting me up for lunches and he taught me how to rap. And, you know, Mm. suddenly I was like indulging my creative side and... And that's really where I found myself in my 20s, because I 
finished university and I thought I've done that bit I've done the thing that I set out to do which was to my dad wanted me to go to university and do a law degree I've done that now I'm going to do my own thing I'm still listening to you but I have Black and White by Asian Dub Foundation in my head great song can you rap for us now Nakesh I mean it's in my head and I want to speak it out loud no <laughs> no it's, it's like someone asking me to just tell them a joke sort of in a lift or something <laughs> I was a very mediocre rapper I mean this is the thing because rap requires so much bravado you have to either be amazing or be a bit weird and I was neither. I was just quite average. And that's the worst thing that you could be for a rapper. So You're right. You can't go out as a rapper and go, I reckon this will be all right, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not amazing. I don't have a big car, but I'll have a crack. That's why I'm a stand-up <laughs> and not, a, not into yeah. hip-hop, basically. Yeah. yeah. But your world was opening up in your 20s, and I mm. suppose you were kind of being able to see different possibilities. Were there people at that time that you kind of looked up to in terms of role models? Or- yeah, so through my university days i was meeting up with didar from asian dub foundation and i was this is one of the coolest male model answers we've had by the way (laughs) and when he left asian dub foundation i was briefly in a band with him and it didn't quite work out and i was doing a lot of spoken word poetry and i I sort of 2005 2006 i wrote a short story that got picked up in an anthology that was being edited by courtier newland and rajiv balasubramanyam so courtier newland who just wrote a river called time and he wrote the lover's rock episode of small acts and he's like one of the most amazing novelists ever and he was my fucking hero and then i'm being edited by him and rajiv had written a, a novel that i really loved and being put in this anthology and i really remember when that anthology showed up on my doorstep my author copy and I had a barcode on the back of it and i was like wow this is so legit i've got a fucking barcode. yeah <laughs> <laughs> people will have to scan this <laughs> yeah someone somewhere will be demanding 9.99 for this <laughs> and it made me stop doing music because i was like you know i'd really appreciated being edited by them that taught me so much about finding your voice and then after that i was working on a novel and i i, I started hanging out with people like selena godden and nifin govindan and they they just mentored me they gave me time and space and a shoulder to cry on and all the rest of it and i just suddenly had these role models and i realized that all of this time I always felt like I was yearning for a big brother Mm. or a big sister who could just lead the way because I was the eldest. I was always the big brother and I just needed like an elder role model to just kind of tell me it's all going to be okay. And then I found it in my late twenties and that's kind of how I ended up managing to finish a novel and get it published. I mean, I find a lot of this echoes what my experience was I was also the eldest and I also saw myself quite proudly as the big brother the the pace setter the guy but it does leave a yearning for something and sure enough I was drawn to slightly older friends and older people I've never thought about it but I think for the reason you said which is I wanted someone to be able to say even someone two years older to be able to say ah this will pass or whatever it is is it's often not discussed thing that as a firstborn as the eldest kid you do have a lot of privileges but the expectation to blaze that trail does weigh on you and you do need someone to be that for you at some point in your life. Yeah, I think that's why I was re- just really lucky to have these amazing mentors in my life. And and this is a thing you do for other people now, by the way, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, ever since my first novel was published, I've mentored younger writers, whether it's like doing for them what Selena and Niven did for me or doing for them what Courtier and Rajiv and Nee Ayikwe Parks did for me. After the success of The Good Immigrant, my literary agent and I, we set up The Good Literary Agency where we represent writers from marginalised backgrounds and we take them on quite early on in their career. So we're sort of doing that early stages development that I had and I give to other writers. You've written about, I'm going to quote you now, are you ready? (laughs) You said that you spent your childhood reading books by people who weren't like you 
but you were able to empathise and see the humanity and universality in them. But what interested me mostly was you didn't really see yourself reflected in the world. You mentioned one of the first ideas of masculinity that you saw was Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, (laughs) I I don't mean to offend you, but you aren't very similar in many ways. You've gone in different directions, you and Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) What does that do to somebody when they don't see themselves recognised in the world around you? What does that do to you when you're growing up? Yeah, I mean... The biggest influence in my life was Peter Parker because Peter Parker was a teenager who constantly felt guilt and shame and tried to make the world a better place because of that guilt and shame. And that was me to a T. So I grew up obsessed with Spider-Man comics. There's a brilliant quote by Juno Diaz where he says, the thing about monsters in fiction, the thing about vampires is they have no reflection. And he goes, the thing that I never thought wasn't that monsters have no reflection. It's that if you want to turn a human being into a monster, then deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves. Mm. You know, we're in the imagination business. Anyone can be anyone. Anyone can write anyone. But what we have is quite a monocultural attitude towards what is on the page and what is on our screens. And I do think that at pivotal times in your life, when you're making decisions about who you could be, it's important to see reflections of yourself yeah, or sure. see reflections of who you could be. You know, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, when you're in your early 20s, when you're, you know, at transitional moments in your life, you need to be able to to point to someone. It's aspirational, mm. you know, whether you point to someone and go, look, there is a kid in a children's book doing the weekly shop with their dad and they are brown or that brown kid is the superhero who's going to save the world from an asteroid. Both of those things are valid. And if you don't have that, you end up in this sort of weird monoculture where like, I'm not the only one who needs diversity. I'm probably beyond it at this point because like I've had a lifetime of just not seeing myself reflected. And I'm very careful to curate for my kids stuff where they see themselves, but it's not just them. Like people who are in the majority need to see people who are in the margins normalized and otherwise that they get marginalized as well like absolutely what we need is for white families to have books where brown and black kids are the main characters absolutely what we need to have is families where there's no one with a disability reading books featuring kids and parents with disabilities and familial structures that aren't one father one mother and so on and so forth like that's what we need we need everyone to be reading these things and treating them as normal because otherwise they're constantly othered and they're constantly just seen as for a specific audience when actually they are as universal as harry potter or whatever we can uh, put this information out afterwards obviously you know to our listeners and stuff like that but off the top of the head are there specific books you you can recommend to people like me with kids because I absolutely agree with you, but I'm not sure I, I can think of many books, you know, that I just don't know what they are, probably. How old are your kids, Mark? Oh, 11 and, um, 11 and 6. You had to think about that second one, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, you lose, once you've had one, you basically, <laughs> you, you, your attention wanders a bit, but 6 or something like that. So there's there's a bunch of books by Nathan Bryan and Dapo Adiola called Look Up and Clean Up that are really great. Right. There's a bunch of really good brown kid detective books that are out at the moment. So there's Space Detectives, there's Anisha Accidental Detective, Agent Zebra Investigates. There's loads of, there's loads of great stuff out oh, there. Oh, this is great. All this is, I mean, detective stuff is really in the sweet spot for the 11 year old, I think. And as you say, you just don't, when I was growing up, I, I was reading not just books about gangs of white kids solving crime, but white kids solving crime mostly in the 60s, 50s and 60s and stuff. You know, our diet was incredibly white and conservative and yeah, that is only just starting to shift now, I think. Yeah, I feel like I exclusively only read Alfred Hitchcock Presents The Three Investigators and The Hardy Boys. You grow up with a very skewed idea of how much of 
kids do actually solve crimes. It's mostly adults <laughs> that do it. But between the Hardy Boys, the famous five, the five find outers, all these people, I grew up thinking that almost all of the crime fighting in the UK was done by, well, all the Hardy Boys are American, actually. I thought there's a, basically a worldwide task force of quite young kids catching smugglers and kidnappers and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's true, you can't see what you can't be and vice versa. But also, you know, at some point, that expectation should have been lifted off us. I was never going to be a crime fighter. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You talked about your father being kind of the strong, silent type. As you've become a father, has that changed your perception of your own father and how he is and was? Yeah, no, thank you for asking me that because that's the journey I go on in the book with my own parents is coming to terms with my mom's death and also coming to terms with my perception of my father when I was a teenager. Mm. Yeah. You build up these images of people because you don't necessarily have the context of what's going on in their interior. Yeah. It's quite fascinating to think that my daughter will just look at me and only see her father. She doesn't see the guy who's um, appearing on his favorite podcast ever or the guy (laughs) who like... But one day she'll know how big this is. (laughs) We don't have access to our parents' interior, yeah. especially when they are the, that strong silence open and, and that conversation is not up for grabs. And so there are assumptions I made about my father growing up that are unfair. And that's what I'm trying to reconcile in the book is that I didn't understand what he was going through. I didn't understand why he put himself through what he did. And because I didn't understand it, I built up a resentment towards him because I saw my friends and their relationships with their parents. and. Yeah they'd be going to Star Trek conventions together or to like a gallery or to see a play or to the movies. And my dad, I just didn't have that relationship with him. The only time I spent with him on the weekends were if I went to his warehouse with him to help out. Mm. I just didn't understand that he did what he thought was necessary and that's how he showed love and that's okay. And sure, he could have been more emotionally available for me, but he did what he did. Have you spoken to him with this understanding now? We haven't had the chat. (laughs) You haven't sat him down in a room and said, right, here we go. Here are the facts of life. Here's what I've learned, Father. (laughs) Lock the doors. (laughs) Right, we're going to hammer this out there. No, we haven't had the chat, but since my mother's passing, my mother's death, he has been a lot softer, a lot more willing to 
be vulnerable in front of me and my sister and our family. And I think that's been really important for him. And it's also been really important for me because now I can accept his fallibility and I can understand his fallibility. I grew up with my dad being infallible. I grew up with my mother being infallible. But now, you know, vulnerability is so rare in people, but like an open mm. vulnerability is so rare in people. And to see it in my father as he en- like as he enters his 70s, like for the last 10 years, he's like he's been in this space and we've become a lot closer so we almost don't have to have the talk right. because we yeah. can talk about much more deeper things rather than dredging up what a selfish dick i was in the past and you're right that sort of vulnerability is rare across the spectrum but especially as people get older they're likely to dig deeper into their personalities you know in a bad way like become more entrenched i think it's quite unusual to develop an enhanced vulnerability as you get older rather than battening down the hatches yeah i wonder if it was always there yeah, yeah, you, that's you, what I was about to say. You have to conclude it must have been. You've talked yeah. about not having that context of what's going on inside. And I, li- I like the idea that the edges are softened and that you've kind of been able to see that more vulnerable side to him. And I think from reading Brown Baby, I know I keep harping on about it because I thought it was brilliant, but the it is great. there's a lot of vulnerability from you about things that men often don't talk about. One of the things I found really interesting was food and the emotional impact of food. And it's something I don't think lots of men talk about. How did it feel writing that down and throwing it out for the world to see? It doesn't get much more vulnerable than writing the sort of book you have, actually. No, uh, well, thanks. And, you know, exposing so much of your personality. It's a massive act of courage. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I write about how food helped me grieve for my mum and, and trying to recreate her dishes as a way of creating a new home in a new city and my relationship with food and, and my mum and how and how that was a big source of comfort and a big source of home for me but also I write a lot about basically how when I was promoting The Good Immigrant I was going around the country talking about racism for a living which is you know I started off as a comedy fiction writer and I'm suddenly seen in this space where like people are coming up to me and going hi I'm writing an article about public intellectuals can you give me a comment and I'm like why are you asking me I'm not a public intellectual yeah, and they're like oh is that is that your comment that you're not a public intellectual I'm like oh, oh, oh wait a minute <laughs> but I was like doing events with really aggy people about talking about racism and you know, you'd go to Edinburgh and you'd talk about racism for an hour. And then in the Q&A or in the signing queue, someone would put their hand up and they'd tell you their story. And then that would sit on your shoulders as well. Mm. So all this is taking a toll on you, presumably. Yeah. And all of this is happening while I've got this new kid and I'm thinking about how to raise her while also being accidentally thrust into like being an expert on racism, which I'm not. And my rule was, if I was missing her bedtimes, I had to try and be back in time for when she woke up in the morning. And so that would mean taking trains at like ridiculous hours of the morning to get back to Bristol. I recognise all this, of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I'd be sitting on those trains alone, dealing with the demons of this evening where I'd been talking about trauma for an evening and I'd just seek comfort. I'd want comfort and I couldn't be at home with my mum watching Frasier eating snacks, but I could just sit on the train and eat and eat and eat and eat. And I developed like quite an unhealthy relationship with food in those. Like I still, still like stress or anxiety happens and I reach for food as a way of comforting myself. And I put all of this into the book because, you know, the central question of the book is like, how do you raise your kids to be joyful when the world is so bleak and you're so sad and angry about it? Because I wanted my kids to understand why I was so sad and angry and what that kind of looked like. But what's weird about talking about it is you do interviews 
and you know the food thing because i'm a man writing about a problematic relationship with food yeah which is not something that many people talk about people are now putting labels on it so that i'm sitting down in interviews and people are like how does it feel to write so openly about your eating disorder? And I'm like, oh, hold on a second, yeah. dude. I just had some crisps, mate. Come on. Yeah, like, that's your label. You know, people feel a real entitlement to what's not on the page when you put so much of yourself onto the page. And I'm like, yeah. obviously, I have to leave some stuff off the page because that's mine. It belongs to me. And also, like, I haven't self-diagnosed this as an eating disorder. Yeah, that's the main thing. That's their phrase, not yours. And it's so strange that people feel that because you've been so honest that they can be honest in their reaction to it. I think there's also a desperation for it to be talked about. I think there's perhaps a desperation in the public sphere for men to talk about having eating disorders. And so perhaps that's being thrust upon you because people want that to be the narrative that you're talking about, whether it is or not. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I I had a slightly similar problem with the book that I wrote that was about a a suicidal guy and the tone of every interview was like... An equally excellent book. Thank you, Michael. But there was an awful lot of like, so, you know, you've written this mental health novel. Again, these sort of terms that you didn't choose for yourself makes you uneasy. That was a work of fiction, at least. This is literally people talking about a book that is your life on the page. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we've said that vulnerability is really important. It's not an easy balance to get right, is it? To expose enough of yourself to be generous but also safeguard some of yourself. Mm. I felt a real connection to you using food to reconnect with, in this case, your mother. But um, Mm. for me, my grandfather is Indian. And when I was younger, I hated my surname. I hated the fact that I looked a bit brown. And I actually, the way I manifested my resistance to that was in food. I loathed curries. I loathed anything that had any spice in it. I didn't want it. I couldn't just give me a fish fingers. Why bother? I was really resistant. You blanded up your, I, your diet. I, I went bland. To get away from um, it. <laughs> it was only like in my early 20s that I kind of began to want to reconnect. And the way that I kind of felt like I could reconnect was partly through food, was to kind of start mm. learning that culture and the smells and the tastes. And my grandfather, he used to make amazing curries and... He never wrote them down. You wrote a fairly similar thing in your book where yeah. the sense that that was almost slipping away from you and it was a way for you to kind of re-tap into that, for me, mm. the heritage, but for you, that relationship. I found that intensely moving to read. I found that really moving. It was beautiful, yeah. I was amazed by the idea that these recipes were never written down. I find it stressful enough cooking with a recipe, <laughs> let alone <laughs> being in the kitchen and someone saying, well, you know, here's four things. A chop, bit of that. Chop them together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember my mum... Oh, my aunt, when I was trying to make something, I was just like, she was like, put some garam masala in. I was like, how much? She said, as much as you need. I was like, I don't know how much I need. Yeah, It's like when a recipe says season to taste, and I'm like, what is taste? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I had a thing about this on stage, talking about chop into reasonable size chunks. And I was like, well, the joke I had on stage was, if I was if I knew it was reasonable, would I be divorced? But it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a common recipe problem, I think. It assumes that you're really good at cooking already. <laughs> Do you reckon that you're in your parenting, Nikesh, and I do always ask people about their parenting styles when I get the chance. You've touched on this a bit. Are you consciously pushing back against the things that are you actively trying to be vulnerable or emotionally literate with the kids? You know, are you setting out your stall as a result of things that you thought could have been different when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I only came to the realisation that I was doing it wrong during lockdown because before lockdown my my way of talking about our feelings would be like sit the kids down and go right let's talk about how this makes us feel and they'd be like i I don't know what you're talking about yeah please don't talk to me like this anymore (laughs) yeah but actually during lockdown we all became obsessed with lego and 
I found that playing Lego was just this sort of brilliant, weird time where you could have really honest conversations with your kids because they weren't, they didn't feel under the spotlight. They'd just be concentrating on this thing that they were working on and you could go, oh, you you were feeling a bit sad today. Let's talk about that. Mm. It would facilitate conversation in really, really interesting ways. But yeah, I'm definitely the, let's talk about our feelings parent, which I think... But you sneak they it in. Grow to resent <laughs> as they get older. When they're twenty-three, you might not be able to get Lego to distract them from emotional conversations in the same way. You might have to find something else. It'll be alcohol then. <laughs> That's the thing. It's much easier yeah. when you can just have a drink with someone. You don't have to build a two hundred piece rocket to chat. About, yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Talking of building, I'm going to bring you in to my favourite question. That was a good segue. That it I wasn't think, bad. Actually. I've seen worse. I've um, seen certainly more long winded segues. You've heard worse. <laughs> yes, than me. I have, yeah. Talking about building, let's talk about the foundations of your <laughs> yeah. there you go that's, that's a listener that's a bear. build and answer this question <laughs> no Nikesh has heard us de- desperately sidestep our way to things before. desperately trying to get uh, sponsorship from a certain manufacturer of children's toys the final question we often ask people is what three qualities if you were to be building a man much in the way as Build-A-Bear workshops work what would you put into them and I suppose it's, it feels quite apt having talked so much about parenting because you're sort of trying to bring that out in your children i suppose yeah being a parent is a bit like you're at a builder bear workshop but with a person (laughs) except about 14 other things have already been put in (laughs) and you're trying to take those out at the same time (laughs) like what three qualities do you think would best equip a man in this world now um the ability to fire a massive gun with one (laughs) one hand that hasn't changed that's a constant (laughs) yeah yeah i think that a man who is able to not become defensive when they feel uncomfortable yeah it's very rare and i say this as someone who becomes what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) we said we weren't going to talk about this thank you thank you i totally agree it's an extremely uh rare skill that i don't have it no me neither i think so much of what's happening at the moment when i see conversations online about men like lawrence fox feeling like they want the world to be binary and not complicated and to talk about races to be the real racist and that that kind of stuff i think a lot of it is to do with the fact that they don't feel comfortable in discomfort Mm. and on the flip side so many people have the intentions of being good allies but they're so scared of getting stuff wrong that they don't show up and actually i'd much rather you show up get it wrong feel uncomfortable learn from what you got Mm. wrong and do better next time be a flawed ally rather than no ally at all yeah i mean i was reading recently about somebody who were talking about pronouns and it is sort of relevant but if someone uses they them pronouns for example and you say they the fact that you've still consciously thought is the important part to them because you're you're actively trying to make a change and that that intention i suppose is is almost more important yeah on a zoom the other day i just complete slip of the tongue i accidentally misgendered someone i then freaked out that they were going to be really annoyed with me or angry with me and it just took me five seconds to just go look people make mistakes all the time what matters is how you carry this forward now in this moment and i thought wow if i could apply that to the rest of my life i'd be a much better human being yeah if you could give yourself a little bit of latitude to get things wrong so a lack of defensiveness basically is your first choice yeah the other thing is a radical vulnerability. 
an ability to be vulnerable, I think, is really, really important. Radical vulnerability is a great phrase. Title of your next book there. Yeah, thank you. I like that because we don't think of vulnerability as, you know, as a positive asset very often, probably. We don't think of it as a thing you can be radical about. Yeah, and and the last thing... I, I was thinking about this this morning, but all of my answers have gone, gone out of my head. You know when someone's like, tell me your 10 favourite films, and you're like... <gasps> Meeting your heroes is always difficult. That's the other thing. It's the occasion. It's the scale of the occasion. But also, (laughs) I'm a parent, and I I know for a fact I might well have said any number of things in the morning, but the morning is a long time ago now. (laughs) I mean, what I will say about finally coming on my favourite podcast is what I've learned is neither of you can frame a tablet camera properly. I've been staring at the soundproofing behind you guys. It's because of social distancing. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. joking. We're just being vulnerable with you about our tech skills. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you liked that stuff. (laughs) So we have being able to sit with discomfort. We have this radical vulnerability and one more thing to make the perfect napkin. Not going to make more pressure. To not think that your joke is better than the joke that the person has just made. Ah, uh, man. All comedians support that. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably very specific for Twitter. When someone on Twitter, yeah. usually it's, it's a woman makes a brilliant joke and then men descend on her mentions to make the joke better. T- tweeting their own versions of it. Yeah, we've all seen that. Yeah. Yeah, Good. a good set of things there. It's, it's a shame, isn't it, that sometimes when we talk about what would make a good man, it's in terms of things we'd like to avoid because we've seen so many <laughs> but we've seen know, so many examples of ideal male behaviors yeah. yeah well yeah but it's interesting to, sorry just to go back to the thing in the book is because like one of the things that i'm talking about in the book is like thinking about how i as a male should be raising my daughters and what i need to be thinking about hmm. and it, it took me down this internet rabbit hole for ages and i was constantly reading these lists for fathers of daughters and yeah i remember this bit of the book and all the lists told me were how we should raise our daughters but with an acceptance of what men are already and it just made me think we should really be thinking about how we raise boys much more importantly and then we can then we can think about how we raise daughters without you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> yeah got, well i remember this bit of the book you, you talked about how it's similar to you talking about how you when you started to realize through the prism of your daughters you started realizing how threatening society can be for women and how dangerous men can seem and stuff and you know but then you wanted credit for that you're texting your female friends and they're like well, I'm not giving you a pat on the back for having taken 35 years to live. And that's a lot of men, I think, including me. We want congratulations for doing the bare minimum in terms of reaching out to women. Yeah, and uh, the reason for putting that in the book was to kind of address that thing I was saying earlier about sitting with your own discomfort. Yeah. Because I wanted to present an example of where I had sat with my own discomfort. Because, I, you know, I was like, I've got a lot of female friends. They, they all tweet radical feminist stuff and I, I retweet them. <laughs> I, yeah. I get it. Well, what else do you want? <laughs> I, yeah, I, and then I witnessed this thing. I'm like, oh my God, I really get it, guys. And they were like... Yeah. I'm a radical feminist now. We've all yeah. done that. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, well done, mate. Yeah. Men, get over yourself. That's, basically <laughs> that's the, a good, yeah. good way to end the podcast, if any. Men, yeah. get over <laughs> yeah. yourselves. Yeah. Well, Nick Ash is going to be shaking for a few hours now. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the come down of this. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. That's been really, really genuinely It's been great, yeah. Um, and we've mentioned the book a few times. Brown Baby is this recent memoir, but yeah. also The Good Immigrant. I reckon 
a lot of people who listen to this will already know about it. But... Is there anything else you'd like us to mention or like to mention to direct people towards anything like that? Please like and subscribe my favourite podcast, Mankind, so uh, they can keep... Oh, the guy is a dream guest. <laughs> I, whoever comes next is going to have a job to... <laughs> I also have a podcast called Brown Baby, which is continuing the good work of the book. Yeah. And you're on Twitter and everything, of course. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> Despite everything we know. Yeah. Every day I wake up and one of my first thoughts is, is today the day I deactivate? Yeah. Yeah, but if you did, you'd just reactivate the next day after. I know, I know. Drag me, Michael, drag me. <laughs> you're talking about Twitter, but is today the day I deactivate? It sounds quite existential. It sounds like you're a machine about to put itself out of existence. Anyway, until such time as you do deactivate, Nikesh, uh, <laughs> thank you we encourage people to find you. You've been great. Thank you. Oh, thanks, guys. That was fun. See you soon. Cheers, Nikesh. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Lovely conversation there with Nikesh. And next week, we have a wonderful person who's actually one of our listeners who got in touch via the methods which we always outline. And their name is Fred. I'd heard of the concept of trans men. Right. It was all very genitalia-based, what I knew. Mm, like, yeah. I think everyone's conceptions of transness at the time, it was all about sex change operations. I think even now, yeah, a, lot of, sadly, a lot of people's idea of what trans means is sort of bogged down in very specific yeah, a lot of focus genitalia on genitals, data. Yeah. Yeah. People tend yeah. to focus on trans people's genitals more than I focus on my own, quite frankly, at yeah. this point. I, and you, you're very into yours, so <laughs> saying something. <laughs> yes, Fred Language, a queer, well, Quaker, and trans man. And it's the first time we've had somebody... Uh, email us and say I'm listening to your podcast and I'd like to be on it and we've just basically uh, done what they said (laughs) (laughs) experimental episode I think because not many podcasts do just kind of open the doors to people who are listeners and uh, have a story to tell and we've always been keen we've from the outset we've had people saying when are you going to feature people who aren't famous and that is a reasonable thing to ask and we've actually gone and put our money where I've done it. The answer is next Monday. And if you would like to get in touch with us and you think you've got an interesting story, please do. Our email address, as always, is menkindpodcast at gmail.com. And our social media is at menkindpodcast. Uh, Fred is genuinely really fascinating, really engaging. And at the end of every interview, we always say to our guests, was there something you wish you'd said that you didn't actually manage to say? And Fred said yes. And I think Mark's got what he wanted to say. Fred said... Um something that feels important that I didn't say is that I'm a non-binary trans man essentially going through the world as a man but recognising that gender can be quite complicated and uh, that's sort of stuff we talk about with Ooh. Fred who as we said is also a Quaker which is not something we've really covered before and has a really interesting life story and yeah the dynamic with our listenership has changed now you can get in touch with us and offer us praise or ego boosting which we've always offered that service <laughs> also you, you can get in touch with us and end up on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, much higher stakes than it used to be, that email address. <laughs> I suppose, actually, by emailing in, you might get on the podcast, but not doing an interview, as Beth has. Um, Beth emailed us to say that she is a cis, queer woman and really enjoys listening to the podcast. She's a bit behind, but it's just catching up and really found the episodes with Bethany Black and Jay Hume really fascinating. And she's given us the possible adjectives because we always end up saying interesting. So she suggests riveting, thought-provoking and insightful. So there we go. That's something to something to think about for next week. That was a great flu receive. Thank you. Anyone else wants to send us useful words that we don't seem to have come across ourselves, <laughs> uh, please do that. Or you can just give us fan mail or you can pitch to be on the podcast. You can't say that our email isn't approachable. <laughs> so until then, please stay safe, wash your hands and we'll see you then. Take care. See you for Fred Language. Bye. Oh, yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 